has grown around us, I think God has been growing us too as we have learned to depend on him, to partner with his Holy Spirit, and to focus on the basics of discipleship and to think less about our own needs and wants and think more about the future of his kingdom in this community in which we sit. And along the way, there have been many difficulties and many inconveniences. Who could forget those cold weeks of winter when we were rugged up without heating because the gas was not connected and we came to church in our puffer jackets and scarves and we sat with hot water bottles on our knees in the office during the week? Or what about Wednesday morning prayer meetings which had to be reconvened into the car park because the construction noise inside the building was so loud that only God could hear our prayers. At times, even getting into the building was a problem with the maze of scaffolding that we had around the place. And we have learned to keep a stack of buckets in the office and they served a dual purpose. They were there for catching the water which came flooding in through the roof via the scaffolding and they were there for when we had no water and had to plan ahead so that we could flush the toilets. And who could forget that delightful stench of rotting wet carpet and sealing stramet material when the scaffolding through the roof became a water feature every time it rained. Those past 18 months have taught us to lighten up a little bit, to loosen our grip a little and to focus on some of the things that really matter. And in doing so, I think we've actually had more fun than we've had in a long time in this place and we've grown much closer together. In fact, I think most of us, if asked, probably wouldn't have had it any other way. And I'm not exactly sure how we in the office are going to go now that we're all spaced out all over the place and have our own work areas. And I think some of the hard evidence for, uh, for this can be seen in the fact that throughout all of it, even when the temperature in the worship sanctuary hovered around a crisp 5 to 10 degrees Celsius and the wet carpet was at its most amazing, there was no drop-off in attendance. In fact, we were blessed with growth. And during this time, we have seen all sorts of amazing acts of service. And so this morning, in many ways, I feel like I'm preaching this topic to the converted because so many of you have a strong servant heart and we and others in the local community have been beneficiaries of this. But I couldn't let this morning's topic pass without making mention of one man, Graham, who together with his wife, Linda, they have virtually put their lives on hold for the last 18 months as they have served God and they have served us in what could only be described as a full-time capacity. Graham has been in here every day for the last 18 months, I would say, without fail. He's often here before I get here, and I get here pretty early, and he's often here after I leave. 
And almost every day brings new challenges for Graham to deal with. Deliveries arrive and the goods are damaged. Well, they're just not correct, not the right sort of toilets. Whoever knew there were so many kinds of toilets? But there are, and Graham knows them intimately. <laughs> Sinks arrive and they come on the wrong side of the unit. Doors open the wrong way. Carpet that we requested to be laid in a checker pattern is laid in straight lines and has to be ripped up again. Hand railings are the wrong height. Safety features are put in that look ridiculous. Things don't fit. Things are out of stock. The plumbing gets blocked. The toilets explode. The roofs leak. The gas leaks. Windows get broken again and again. The site gets burgled. Parking is difficult. Every day seemingly brought a different problem for Graham to deal with. And every day Graham came into this place with a smile on his face. He has served us with great joy. And so this morning in first service when Graham was here, we extended to him a very warm thanks. And I hope that when you see Graham too, you will do likewise because he has served us admirably. And while I'm preaching this morning about Christian service, really Graham has demonstrated it and lived it out for us this last 18 months. But Graham is not the only one with a great serve in this place. There have been many others. Jeff Priest drives up from Geelong and he has spent weeks here rewiring this auditorium, rewiring that auditorium, rewiring mainly music and many of these jobs by the time we've finished, he and Wes McKinnon who have assisted him will have done three times by the time we finish as they've moved us from place to place to place. But Jeff, like Graham, comes with a big smile on his face, his apple cake in his hand, and he just goes about the work. There are still others. Remember when the renderers were here and they dropped those little annoying splashes of concrete all over the place? Did you know there was someone who came to this place and spent a day on their hands and knees scraping concrete splatters off the pathways and things that were below. What about those who come week after week and painstakingly sanded back the children's playground fence and then painted it? Or those that pull weeds or hand water the gardens? Did you know there's someone who repairs broken tables and chairs as part of their service? Or someone who tediously chops up all the garden material so that we can fit as much as possible in our limited bins each week. Did you know there's someone who comes and puts the bins out and takes them back in? There are those that have used their money to serve us generously, contributing towards everything that we see around us. There are some who teach our children, some who serve tea, some who visit the sick and the lonely. Some cook meals, some play music or sing, some prepare food hampers, some set up for Sunday services, some handle our finances or mow the lawns and sweep leaves, some, some serve in op shops or with other community groups and charities and others serve overseas. I could go on and on. 
but I won't. We've just come off the back of three Saturdays, back to back, of working bees. And I can tell you they weren't your easy kind of maintenance working bees. These were hard work working bees. There was soil to be moved, six metres of soil to be moved. There was bark to be moved, holes to be dug, plants to be planted, things to be lifted, heavy things were lifted yesterday. Things that were shifted and packed and unpacked, cleaned, furniture was constructed, all in preparation for today. And on that second working bee, I came in from working outside, because if I'm going to work anywhere, and I will always be outside, not inside. And I came in for morning tea, and I'll never forget the sight in our auditorium. I'm not sure what Moses was laughing at, but I think his group had stuck something on backwards or something. In the back corner, there was a group of people, mostly elderly people, who had come with food to encourage those that were doing the grunt work. And they were setting that up and preparing that. And then in the auditorium, the chairs had all been pushed aside and there were four teams of people working on constructing flat pack sort of sideboard units for the officers upstairs. And when I looked at these people, there was such diversity among them. There were older ones working with younger ones. There were those that clearly knew what they were doing and there were those that were clearly doing what they were told. And they were of diverse cultural backgrounds and they were all doing what they could and there was much laughter as they tried to put together these life-size jigsaw puzzles. And you know what I thought when I came in? I thought, this is the kind of church where I want to be. A place where everyone can play a part and every part is valued. Now most of us left exhausted at the end of that day and some of us still had aching arms from shoveling soil. But by the time the next weekend rolled about, there was another working bee to go to. And we all backed up and we all did it again. Why? I think that for those that attended, any inconvenience or any physical hardship was completely overwhelmed by the great feeling of joy that we all shared as the big day finally drew near. Now I'm going to change tack a little bit here. My husband suffers occasionally from terrible nighttime leg cramps. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced them. Apparently they're bad. I haven't. They usually happen in the early hours of the morning, 2 or 3 a.m., and they see him yelling in pain and writhing around holding on to his calf muscles. And I have to admit that after decades of this, I have become a bit immune to his suffering. And recently, during one outburst, I said tongue-in-cheek, is there any chance you could suffer more quietly? I didn't make this much noise giving birth. <laughs> and he replied, oh, but this pain is way worse than childbirth. <laughs> and I said, how would you know? You've never given birth. To which he replied, given the choice, I would never freely go back for more of this pain. But you and many others like you went back again and again <laughs> to experience childbirth. 
And I suppose he's right about one thing there. Because you see, there are many things about childbirth and about parenting that are just no fun. There's morning sickness. That is no fun at all for anyone who's experienced it. Then there is that late stage of pregnancy where you're so uncomfortable that you can hardly sleep at night. No fun. Then there's the actual giving birth. I did not find that fun at all. Then the fatigue sets in a bit later on when you have to go back to work and try and function like an adult. That's no fun. Dirty nappies are no fun. Messy house, not fun at all. Empty bank balance, not fun. Huge piles of washing, not fun. Loss of almost all of your personal life, not fun. Two-year-old temper tantrums, especially in public, no fun. Head lice, no fun. Multitude of childhood illnesses, again, no fun. All of these things are no fun. Yet in spite of all the sacrifices and the hardships, almost every parent wouldn't have it any other way. Why? Because there is a great joy in being a parent and shepherding a young life into adulthood. And so, for so many of us, we all go back and we do it again and again. Jennifer Senior is the author of this book here, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. And in it, she contends that young children allow adults to experience a different way of living, a world of forgiveness and unconditional love. And when they experience that, she says, they will willingly make enormous personal sacrifices and endure great hardship to serve their child or children, even when their efforts go unrecognised, are not reciprocated and at times are not even wanted. Now I would contend that this world of forgiveness and unconditional love that the author speaks of is found in two places. It is found in families that are functioning well, but it is also found at the cross. And therefore, by extension, it should also be found in churches that are functioning well. And when it is truly found, it brings abundant joy, it brings a strong desire to serve, and a willingness to make sacrifices for those that we love. Our focus shifts from ourselves and our priorities change. And in the case of those that we love, when we're talking about families, that's a relatively small group. However, in the church, when we talk of the church, universal God's family, we're called to love our enemies. And so there is no limit on the bounds for Christian service. Now Jesus addressed this issue of priorities with his disciples on numerous occasions. And we're going to look at just one of those today. So if you've got Bibles, um, if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 10. 
We're going to read verses 32 to 45. Mark 10, 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, hap- what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptised you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the scene that we have before us in this passage is something like this. Jesus has just set out resolutely for Jerusalem. He knows the suffering and the sacrifice that will lie ahead of him in order for him to make the forgiveness and the unconditional love that is part of the kingdom of God a reality in a fallen world. But onward he marches anyway. Behind him come the twelve and behind them probably many other pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. One of the other gospels says that he set his face like flint. In other words, well aware of the dangers that lay ahead of him, he was determined to go and could not be dissuaded. And it is for this reason that the disciples are described as amazed or astonished and those that follow them as afraid. Then Jesus takes the twelve aside and he tells them about his future suffering and death. But this wasn't the first time that he had done this. The first time Mark records for us in chapter 8 of his gospel. 
And after that time, Peter is so shocked by what he hears because the suffering and the rejection that Jesus speaks of is so far from what he expects of Israel's Messiah that he openly rebukes Jesus. And Jesus counters with the well-known, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Peter, your priorities are so wrong. The second time Jesus taught them about what lay ahead for him comes in chapter 9 from verse 31 onwards. And there we learn that the disciples had no idea what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Instead, they argued among themselves about who would be the greatest. Now, in a culture where status and rank were very important in Jewish groups, that was a kind of normal conversation to have. It was important for them to work out who was in charge and what the pecking order was. But theirs was not to be a kingdom based on earthly priorities. And so this focus of theirs was misguided. Then here again, Jesus explains the details of his suffering, this time in even more detail. He knows he will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and he knows that eventually he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. And in this context, of course, the Gentiles means the Romans and so by inference, that means that he knows he will die by crucifixion. Jesus knew that crucifixion lay ahead of him and he also knew from the prophets further details he knew that he would be mocked. He knew that he would be spat on. And he knew that he would be flogged. That's where his mind is and where his priorities lie. But what of his disciples? In spite of all that Jesus has now three times revealed to them, they're still locked into their earthly paradigm. They think he's going to Jerusalem like some sort of victorious earthly king to seize power from the Romans and liberate the Jews from Roman oppression. And they want to be part of that victory. While they have their minds on earthly glory, Jesus knows that his is not an earthly kingdom and that his road to glory will be marked by sacrifice and suffering. And so sensing that victory is near, the words of Jesus that appeal to these disciples are not all this talk about suffering and death, but some words of Jesus that Mark does not record in his gospel for us, but which Matthew does. And Matthew places these words between the disciples' argument about who would be the greatest and this request of James and John to Jesus about positions of authority and prominence and there Jesus said to them when the son of man sits on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and so now believing that victory is about to occur and that they will soon sit on thrones with Jesus they want to know who's going to sit where and naturally, they want to reserve the best positions for themselves. And the best positions to, next to an ancient king 
are those positions that are closest to him because it's there that you can hear everything that's said and it's there that you can make a direct appeal for anything that you might happen to want. But notice Jesus' response. He doesn't specifically rebuke them for their request. He rebukes them for their ignorance of what it is they're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for, he says. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? What is Jesus talking about here? Clearly the disciples are not going to all be crucified together with him. And part of our understanding of this um, statement or question of Jesus comes in our understanding of what the cup and the baptism meant to these people. The cup was an Old Testament metaphor used to mean whatever the king had in store for someone. Now that could be something good or it could be something bad. It can be a cup of blessing, as in Psalm 23, 5, my cup runneth over. Or it could be a cup of wrath and terror, as we read in the prophets. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 17, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. Or Isaiah 51, 17. Wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror. For Jesus, the cup represented the wrath of God that he would endure on our behalf at the cross. It was the cup of suffering brought about by the physical torment of the cross but also the emotional and spiritual pain of the father turning away for a time from the son. The Greek word baptizo from which we get baptism was used by the Greeks to describe intense trials. To baptize means to immerse and so it describes an intense trial in which Jesus would be completely immersed. It would affect every part of him. He would be overwhelmed by it. And we use water for baptism, as they did in, in the days of the Bible. In the days of Noah, judgment, cleansing and purification was brought about by water. Later, the Israelites were said to be baptised into Moses when they crossed the Red Sea. And God's wrath and judgment came upon Egypt when they attempted to follow them and were overwhelmed by that water. But the New Testament speaks of two kinds of baptism for Jesus. There's the one with which we're all familiar. That was when he was immersed in the water of the Jordan River. And this was symbolic of his stepping into the mess of sin in the world and immersing himself in God's judgment of that sin. The second was not symbolic. It happened at the cross. And there he actually was baptised or immersed in our sin. And it would, for a time, completely overwhelm him. 
This would be his road to glory. He would take the cup of suffering and wrath and drink it all. And the experience of that intense suffering and anguish would overwhelm him. And you've got to love James and John here in their response to Jesus' question. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? And what do they answer? We are able, they say. Now the obvious answer here is no. No, they cannot bear the wrath of God. No, they cannot deal with sin. No, they cannot save themselves. And sure, some of the disciples would later go on and die by crucifixion, but none of them would bear the sin of the world and the consequences that that would bring on their shoulders. So how can Jesus reply in the affirmative to their misguided or foolish answer, we are able? Well, the phrase to drink the cup I drink was a Jewish expression meaning to share someone's fate. The cup, remember, was what the king had in store for someone, be it good or bad. And ultimately, we will share in his fate, reigning with him as joint heirs. But we can drink from his cup only because he's first taken all the punishment out of it by drinking every last drop. And so the cup that we drink, therefore, is the cup of the new covenant. And by it, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. We turn away from the kingdom of self and become immersed in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to explain that specifically what they were asking for, the positions on his left and his right, were not his to give. And at this point, the other disciples become indignant with James and John. And the Greek word that is translated here as indignant means to be greatly grieved or violently irritated. And that same word is used to describe the fermentation process of wine. So the image that we're given is one of bubbling and frothing and fermenting, possibly up to an explosion. We're not told specifically what they're indignant about. Was it that they were shocked that these two would ask Jesus such a thing? Or was it that they were just upset that James and John had beaten them to it? Based on Jesus' response, I would suspect that the latter is true. Jesus points them to the Gentile rulers who exerted authority over the population to the full. And he says, it's not going to be like this with you. That's not how the kingdom of God operates. And then he takes their squabbles about who will be the greatest and their requests for positions of prominence, and he turns them on their head, saying, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And the Greek word there is dikonos, and we get from that word the word deacon. So a deacon is literally someone who serves. Jesus continues... Whoever would be first among you must be doulos, 
which means slave of all. And in the time of Jesus, up to a third of the Roman population were slaves. And another third had been slaves at some stage in their life. And the Greek word doulos referred during Jesus' time to a bond servant. Now that could be someone who was voluntarily in service. Perhaps they'd been a slave and released, but decided to go back and serve in their former master's household. But normally it referred to someone who was considered the owner's personal property. And that person would forever be in a position of serving. It was about as subservient as you could get because a bond servant was completely at the disposal of his master. And that is what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. It is a kingdom unlike any earthly kingdom. Some call it the upside-down kingdom, a kingdom where the king stoops to wash dirty feet, where those who want greatness must be servants and those who wish to be first must be slave of all. It is a kingdom that is marked by forgiveness and unconditional love. And those who leave behind the kingdom of self and immerse themselves in it will be forever different. Just as self-sacrifice and service are the marks of any parent immersed in the world of forgiveness and unconditional love that they enter when children come along, how much more should self-sacrifice and service mark those who have drunk from the cup of the new covenant and who are immersed in the world of forgiveness and unconditional love that is the kingdom of God. Neither parent nor Christian serve because they have to. They do it because they are driven by love, because they have a new set of priorities, and because with the birth of a child or the conversion of a Christian, they see the world differently. As we grow in our relationship with Christ, we become more like him. Increasingly, we see the people around us as he sees them. It gets harder to turn away from suffering. It becomes difficult to see people struggle or in pain. It is uncomfortable leaving work to others. The thought of people perishing in sin becomes harder and harder to bear and our desire to do something about these things, whatever our contribution might be, whether it is being part of building a building which will house ministries into the future or feeding the poor on the streets or taking a meal to someone who is unwell, whatever our contribution is, the desire to serve becomes stronger and stronger. But most astounding of all is that regardless of any personal sacrifice or hardship, for the new parent, and for the disciple of Christ, serving is a joy. A healthy church, therefore, is one in which everyone has a part to play and every part is valued. In a healthy church, people serve with joy, not because they have to, but because, as disciples, they want to. And that is why what we've witnessed over the past three Saturdays and indeed over the past 18 months is so 
heartwarming. Throughout the build, it has been our prayer that we would not only be built up on the outside, and you will have heard this many times, we don't want to be just building with bricks and mortar, but we want to be building on the inside as disciples of Christ and the people of God. And when I walked into the auditorium two Saturdays ago and saw the place filled with such a diversity of people, all laughing and encouraging one another, generally having a great time and getting the job done, I felt sure that that prayer is being answered. And so I pray that the lessons that we've learned in these past 18 months will remain with us for many, many years to come. Amen. Father, we thank you for, for this building. We thank you for this place and the people who are in it. Lord, we thank you for the gifts and skills that you have given each one. Lord, we pray that as we begin to move around and feel comfortable in this building, Lord, that we would continue to grow as your disciples and be used in service for your kingdom in this community. Amen. Let's all rise. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve, and gave your life that we might this is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. There in the garden of tears My heavy load he chose to bear His heart with sorrow was torn Yet not my will but yours he said This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. see his hands and his feet. The scars that speak of sacrifice as that plant soars into space. To cruel nails surrender. This is our God. 